question. Do you know how to help somebody who is suffering? You know how to help someone who is in need? You ever found it frustrating? A family member comes to you or someone is going through some hard time in their life, whatever that might look like, and and, and you ever felt kind of helpless to, to know really how to meet their deepest needs? A lot of people suffer, but do you have the answers to help them? Well, the church in Thessalonica was suffering, was going through some difficult times, and it's very helpful to see how the Apostle Paul deals with a suffering church. So let's see how the Apostle helps the Thessalonians. I find this encouraging, it's, it's comforting, it's helpful, and, and brings great hope. And so you need to understand something about the church in Thessalonica. It was going through persecution, but it, there, was, there was other problems going on as well. Some of the believers thought they were already in this day of the Lord. Paul addressed that in chapter, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians. And you, and if you don't remember what the day of the Lord is, that was just that time of tribulation coming toward the end of the seven-year tribulation where uh, the whole world is going to be judged. A lot of terrible judgments taking place during that time. And because of some false teaching, there were people, believers even, in the church of Thessalonica who thought they were in that day of the Lord. God's judgment was coming down on them. And they were discouraged by this false teaching. And so Paul writes to explain God's program for the age. But he's also writing here to encourage these suffering Christians that don't give up, don't grow weary, but remain true to the Lord. And so we're going to see each, there's going to be three main points coming from the three chapters of 2 Thessalonians. And Chapter 1, we're going to see Paul give encouragement in suffering. In chapter 2, he's going to correct the error that's come as a result of the false teaching. A lot of people, remember, were thinking that they were in this time of judgment, this day of the Lord. And then in chapter 3, Paul's going to give some practical exhortation. Based on this wonderful truth, here's how we need to live. So that's the three points we're we're going to go through. Let's just take them one at a time. And so in chapter 1, we see Paul's going to give some encouragement in suffering. Suffering is not all bad, and, and Paul encourages them. And the first thing we, we see Paul mentioning here is that suffering helps believers to grow. You want to grow? Then you need to experience some suffering. <laughs> That's what one of the things Paul's telling him, basically. Look at verse 3. By the way, if you're wondering, uh, how do we know Paul wrote this? Well, he mentions his name in verse 1. It's Paul. Who is he writing to? Verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Hopefully you can see there that suffering helps believers to grow. The Thessalonian Christians, as you can see here, and and we saw in 1 Thessalonians, we, we saw the reputation was a good one. Paul was encouraged. They had a growing faith, abounding hope, a radiant love. And they had difficult circumstances, difficult experiences that were causing their faith, hope, and love to grow. Furthermore, they had a good testimony. And their testimony was was abounding even beyond Thessalonica. It was growing, and all the churches were hearing about them and was, was noticing their stand for the Lord, and they were encouraged. Paul was able to glory in them among all the churches. And their steadfast endurance was an encouragement to other believers. You ever experience that yourself? You see somebody who's going through difficult time, but yet they're remaining steadfast, they're enduring, they're patient in their trials and suffering, and it's, it's, it's like it just bolsters you, doesn't it? It gives you 
iron up your your backbone. It encourages you. As even this morning, as we watched believers in China, I was encouraged. My my faith, hope, and love was growing as I see my brothers and sisters in Christ enduring through their sufferings. But note too that they were growing in patience. They were growing in patience. Verse four. Or steadfastness, some of your Bible translations might say. See, the Christian who prays for more patience gets something that they may not be expecting. (laughs) You ever heard somebody say, be careful what you pray for? You might actually get it. You ever heard people pray for patience? That can be dangerous because the Bible says that tribulation brings patience. So just be careful. The patience is a good thing. I'm not saying don't pray for it, but more, if you want patience, then you can expect tribulation because God says tribulation is that spiritual tool that He's going to use to make us patient. Tribulation or suffering, trials, if you will, it's the the tool that's going to shape off those rough edges. And so when suffering comes, it's either going to make us or it's going to break us. Hopefully it's going to make you, but if we accept the suffering that God brings into our life, and if we yield to God's will and we continue to stand true, then that suffering is going to cause us to grow. We're going to grow to be more conformed to the image of Christ. So we see, first of all, that suffering helps believers grow. And Paul, number two, he says that suffering prepares believers for glory. Want to be prepared for glory? And by glory, we mean heaven, of course. You want to be prepared? Then you need a little suffering. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might." When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Pause there for a moment. Paul does not look upon suffering as a burden. Instead, he he sees it as a blessing. In fact, elsewhere, Paul calls calls his suffering, it's, it's light, it's momentary affliction. And when Paul said that they should be counted worthy of the kingdom, in verse 5, which we didn't read, by the way, he's not suggesting that somehow they could earn a place in heaven by their own merit. That totally contradicts Scripture. You can't earn anything with God. The idea of worthy there in verse 5 is describing our fitness, not our merit. So think of it as you are you you are fit for heaven. So God is fitting us, and how is He doing that? He is fitting us for heaven through our suffering, through suffering for the glory that lies ahead. See, our suffering here today, any suffering we go through is is only preparation for what is yet to be revealed. Steadfastness is mentioned here. It's a blessing that is. Steadfastness in suffering is also a testimony. It's a testimony to the lost world, to the unbelievers in our world. When they see a believer, they see you being steadfast, enduring through your trials and affliction. Hopefully they see Jesus in you. They, they see something in you, hopefully that's attractive, something that they want. Hopefully they don't see a whiner, a complainer, a whinger, somebody who is discontent, because that's not attractive to the gospel. It it may seem that God's not judging the sins of the world, and sometimes that can cause us to be discontent. 
And so we need to remember chapters in the Bible like Psalm 73 that says we, we don't need to fret, or Psalm 37. We don't need to threat or, or fret. God's in control. All the wicked people of this world, their judgment is coming. So sometimes we, we get a little discouraged, don't we? we? It's like, hey, you know, I'm trying to do right and I'm suffering, but it seems like the ones who are evil in our world get away with it. Well, no, they're not really. <laughs> it's not true. And so if we walk in unbelief, and that's what it is, we're going to get discouraged. We're going to think that somehow God is not supporting us. The reality is that God is preparing judgment for the wicked. He mentions that here. He is preparing judgment for the wicked. There is something called an eternal destruction in verse 9. There is no such thing as annihilation. It is something that is real and it is permanent. So God's preparing judgment for the wicked. And so this is important to know because it encourages us. And, and in this, we can rest with confidence. But number three, we also see that suffering glorifies Christ. Even today, it, our suffering can glorify Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 11. Verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling. In other words, He's making you fit and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that in verse 10? That Jesus Christ, well, even in verse 12 as well, that Jesus Christ will be glorified in His saints. Believers ought to glorify Him every day that we live, of course. But even in suffering, we can glorify Christ. And this is the burden of Paul's prayer for the believers here, that God might fulfill His purpose in their lives. He also wanted the, the name of Christ to be glorified through them even through their suffering and how they endure that. Paul's ministry was the Word of God in prayer. And he taught the people God's truths. And then he prayed for them to then live out that truth in their life. Believers can be confident in suffering. How do you know? How, how can that happen? Well, we, we see in first, or 2 Thessalonians 1 here that that can happen because, number one, God has chosen us. And He said that He would never forsake us. So the good work that God begins, He's going to complete, Philippians 1 says. And so if the sinful world seems to be winning the battle today, we can rest in faith. We can trust in God knowing that they are, they're going to lose. <laughs> right? We know the end result. The end result is they will lose. It may not be today, but it will be tomorrow. And so our responsibility then is to live worthy of this high calling, verse 11 says, and then to allow God to work out His perfect will in our lives. So what should Christians do when they're going through painful testing and trials? What should you do when you're hurting? Well, number one, you need to thank God for your salvation. <laughs> That's what Paul is encouraging them to do. Thank God for your salvation. And number two, surrender to the will of God and do it without complaining. Don't complain, but surrender to God's will. And then three, ask God to give you wisdom that you would understand His will. See, that's Paul, Paul could go through his sufferings encouraged and rejoicing because he knew he was in God's will. And then number four, watch for opportunities to witness and glorify God in whatever situation you're in. See, Paul could be changed, chained to Roman soldiers. And some people would grumble and complain and just want to give up, but not Paul. Paul says, cool, I'm chained to Roman soldiers. I have a captive audience to share the gospel to. <laughs> You see the perspective there? 
Totally different perspective from a lot of us, isn't it? And then number five, Paul says to wait patiently until God's purposes have been fulfilled. God is at work. He has a purpose even in our suffering. So, of course, if we're out of the will of God and trouble does come into our life, then that's a little different story. That's God's chastening hand. God is chastening you. He's bringing you back to Himself. Well, this first chapter is a great encouragement for the believer in trying days. But how are these days trying? How are our days trying? Our days aren't going to look exactly the same as these people's did. Well, the world is, of course, going downhill. We know that. And we might look at the news and we might complain about that. But where are they going? On the whole, where is the world going? You need to think about that. You need to see the world. As everybody in this world is having a soul. It's going to live forever. Someplace. A lot of people don't want to hear or heed the Word of God. That might cause problems for true believers. Faithful Christians are suffering in many places of the world. Serious suffering going on while the godless unbelievers seem to prosper. So it seems as though God has forsaken His own people, doesn't it? Well, Paul says that is not the case. The believer can rest knowing that God is at work. He hasn't died. He's still on the throne. So one day, he is going to vindicate his own people. God is going to be bring vengeance on the lost. It's going to happen. He said it would. And then we move on to chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. We see Paul correcting the false teaching, the error that had arisen in the church at Thessalonica. Chapter 2 is Paul's explanation of the day of the Lord. He's also going to talk about this man of sin. And there was a problem. There's a problem. Because in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about the, how they were quickly shaken in mind. They were alarmed. The Christians were shaken because they had been falsely taught that the day of the Lord was already upon them. God's judgment was coming on them now. So Paul explains that certain events had to take place before the day of the Lord would come. This is encouraging. Because we can look at this even today and, and see that, hey, we're, we're not in the day of the Lord yet either. There, there are certain events that are yet to come which show us that we're not there yet. We're not in the day of the Lord. You say, well, what are those events that Paul mentions? Number one, Paul mentions the apostasy. There is an apostasy that must take place before the coming judgment of Jesus Christ comes. Let's read about the apostasy in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what is the apostasy, or the what the ESV calls the rebellion? Verse 3 there. Well, it's a word that literally means a falling away, a revolt, or a rebellion, which is why it's translated that way. Just take note, Paul's using a definite article. All the words of Scripture are inspired, they're breathed out by God, and that's why we need to read and study it carefully. Notice there's a the. 
the. It is the rebellion or the apostasy. The definite article, the, reveals that Paul's not just talking about a general apostasy or a general rebellion against God here. And I say that because there's even evangelical scholars who, in their commentaries, would say that. But looking at the the word the before it and looking at the context shows us this is not just a general flow or trend here, but Paul's talking about something specific, a specific event that hasn't happened yet. The identifiable act of apostasy here. And you look at the context, it's it's an apostasy that's a, well, it's, it's an act of rebellion against God. Paul's identifying the apostasy here by naming the key character that's connected with this. In my Bible, he's called the man of lawlessness. Some translations call him the man of sin. He's that person that we call the Antichrist. The Antichrist of the tribulation period. What is this rebellion referring to? Well, Paul's alluding to what the prophet Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel calls it the abomination of desolation. There's a little uh, thing on the screen here for you that might be helpful. You see on the far left that we're in the, the time of the Gentiles during this church age that coming before the tribulation, the church is going to be raptured, and then there's going to be this seven-year period we call the tribulation. And during this time period, the Antichrist is going to rule and reign. The first three and a half years, he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel. He's going to appear to be peaceful. But coming at the midway point of the seven years, the three and a half year mark, Daniel calls this event the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist is going to demand that the world worship him. He's going to walk into the Jewish temple and he's going to set himself up to be God. He's going to exalt himself as as Paul talks about here. He's going to take his seat in the temple of God and demand that everyone worship him. Why does he do that? Because he wants to display himself as God. And Satan is going to empower him and give him this authority, and he's quite happy to take as much authority and worship from God as he possibly can. What's Paul's point here, by the way? Why is Paul even mentioning this? Well, this rebellion or this apostasy is a unique event. It hasn't happened yet. See, the day of the Lord hadn't come yet. And, and the believers in Thessalonica could, could see that this hadn't happened yet and could be encouraged. Hey, this event hasn't happened yet, so we must not be in the day of the Lord. Right? It hasn't happened, so this judgment cannot have arrived yet. And by the way, it never will for the church, for the believers in the church age. We don't need to fear the wrath of the Antichrist. Instead, we're looking for King Jesus. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for King Jesus to come. The Bible says when he does come, he's going to gather the believers to himself. So the first event that Paul mentions here is this rebellion must take place. Number two, the temple is going to be rebuilt. Because we, we just read about this. Look Again, look at chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. The Antichrist, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians. He's he's obviously taught them in his previous visit. So Paul promises here that there is going to be a rise of a world dictator. And he's not talking about a world system here. He's talking about a specific person 
who's going to head up this world system. And we commonly call this, this man here the Antichrist. That's what the book of Revelation usually calls him. This world dictator, this world ruler is going to be energized by the devil. You can read about that in Revelation. He's going to unite the nations in this great federation. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 7, Daniel talks about uh, a weird-looking creature that had ten horns. The ten horns are this, is this world federation. Daniel's talking about this time during the tribulation when the Antichrist is going to He's going to rule. And according to Revelation 17, the Antichrist will cooperate with the apostate world church, at least in the the beginning part of the tribulation, he will. But then he's going to rise to power. He's going to have ultimate power. And then when he's done with the religious system of that time, he's then going to destroy it when he no longer needs it. Now, I don't know exactly who's going to rebuild the Jewish temple. (laughs) Uh, It's an interesting thing to think about because if you look at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem at the moment, there's a a dome, isn't there? A bright golden dome. It's the obvious thing every time you see a picture of Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to be destroyed. I've heard people say it will. The Arabs would hate that, wouldn't they? All the Arabs would uprise. You dare touch their precious dome there of the rock? Ooh, boy, that could be dangerous. But somehow there's going to be a new temple built. Because the Antichrist is going to walk into this temple of God. And he's going to demand that he be worshipped. Well, here's how the program goes in case your prophecy's uh struggling a little bit here. Let me just give you a few things to think about. Number one... We've already seen that the church is going to be raptured. That's the next thing we're looking for. Christ coming in the air, receiving us to Himself is is the next thing on the the agenda. Then the Antichrist is going to begin His rise to power, but according to Revelation, He's coming on a white horse. It's a peaceful time. He's going to use diplomacy, peaceful means to take over the world. And number three, he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel that will take place much of the tribulation. He's going to appear to love Israel. He's going to appear to come across as the friend of Israel. He's going to become buddy-buddy with them. And then, after three and a half years, he's going to break that peace treaty, that covenant with Israel. He's going to invade Israel. He's going to take over. And that's why Jesus, in Matthew 24 and 25, he, he tells Israel, you need to flee. When He comes, you need to flee to the mountains. Get away. He's coming after you. And then He's going to abolish all religion. The Antichrist is going to set Himself up to be worshipped. You can read about that in Revelation 13. And then at the end of this seven-year tribulation period, which, which we call the Day of the Lord, Christ will return to the earth He's going to deal with the Antichrist and the false prophets and the whole army of the Antichrist that comes against Jesus will be destroyed. We call that the Battle of Armageddon. And then we enter into this wonderful time period we call the Millennium. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20. Paul doesn't talk about that time period here, but Another thing that he does mention, another event that's going to take place before the day of the Lord is, number three, the restrainer must be moved, removed. This restrainer, who, who or whatever it is, has to be removed. Let's talk about it. Let's see what the Scripture says. Chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, And you know what is restraining him, the Antichrist now, so he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Let's pause there. We know that Satan is alive and he's well. He is at work. He is not bound at the moment. 
He will be one day. When Jesus Christ comes back at the Battle of Armageddon, He's not just going to deal with Antichrist, He's going to deal with Satan. And Satan will be bound until the end of the millennium. We can see Satan's influence increasingly. It's increasing in our world. And so what is holding back Satan's program is God. What is holding back the rise of the Antichrist at the moment is God. God is in control. God has a restrainer in this world, and I'll just give you my opinion here. I believe this restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. See, God has times and seasons marked out. He knows the days. He knows what's happening. History is His story. And so the one who is hindering in verse 7, I think, is the Holy Spirit. And He's going to continue to hinder Satan's activities until He is out of the midst of them. That doesn't mean He's totally removed, because... We know according to Revelation, there's going to be many thousands upon thousands of people come to Christ during the tribulation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But when the church is raptured at the beginning of the tribulation there, then, then there's this, there, in some way the restrainer is taken out. Of course, he is going to continue to work since people will be saved. But his hindering ministry through the body of Christ is going to end. And then Satan will then have free reign on this world. But another thing is going to happen before the day of the Lord here. We see uh, the Bible mentions that King Jesus must return. King Jesus must return and, and actually come back to the earth. See, in the rapture, he doesn't come back to the earth. He comes in the air. And the believers go to meet Jesus in the air. But, but we see he's going to come back one day. Look at verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So when's this going to happen? When's King Jesus coming? It's going to be at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And what is he coming to do? There's two things mentioned in this passage. Number one, he's coming to judge the Antichrist. He's coming to judge the Antichrist. We see he's going to kill him, if you will, with the breath of his mouth. He's going to bring him to nothing. This man who has raised himself up against God, demanding the world worship him, is going to be judged. He's not going to get away with it. The, the second thing we see Jesus is going to do when he comes back is he's going to judge the unsaved people. They're not going to get away with it either because it talks about all these wicked. They're going to perish. No, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so we know we can't be in the day of the Lord. But there's another thing, a fifth thing that the Bible mentions here, we see that the church must be completed. It's not complete yet. Look at verse 13. Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit in belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 
Paul's application. It's a wonderful application. He just simply says, stand fast. Don't be moved. Don't be moved by the world. Don't be moved by political upheavals. Don't be moved by ISIS. <laughs> Don't be moved by uh, the, this, the mess of this world. Don't be moved by religious apostasy. Don't be moved by what the Pope says. All these things have to take place. But God is still on the throne. So as the end of the age draws near, it's going to be more and more difficult to live for Christ. For you to stand for Christ and for His gospel and His cause is going to get harder as the day draws near. So what should the Christian do? Paul says, hold on to the Word of God. Don't let go. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. Don't listen to the lies of preachers on the radio or the internet or in pulpits around the world. Don't listen to the teachings of the cults or the sugar-coated promises of false teachers who can tell you rubbish like you can have your best life now. Don't listen to that stuff. Well, instead, we've got to hold to the Word of God. How do we do that? Well, there's three things Paul talks about here. How do you hold to the Word of God? Number one, you have to believe the truth. Know the truth and believe it. It's encouraging because he says there at the end of verse 13, believe in the truth. The truth will set you free, won't it? But it's not just that. You've got to guard the truth. It's not enough to just believe something. If you believe, really, really believe something, then you know it's important enough to guard it, to protect it. Paul talks about that in verse 15. Hold to these traditions. Stand firm. And then number three, practice the truth. See, if, if the truth is that important, then you're going you're gonna to live it out in your life. So we, gotta, we, we must keep on working, as verse 17 says, that Every good word and work, it says. That's a good motto that we ought to follow in these dark days. Keep on giving out the word. Keep on working for Christ until He comes. Well, these are great and challenging days. May God enable us to be found faithful when He comes. In chapter 3, Paul ends the, this wonderful book by giving some practical exhortation. That's the third main point. It's all about practical exhortations. You see, he's been talking about Christ's second coming. It's a doctrine that is very, very important. It's a fundamental of the faith. But see, doctrine has to affect our lives. It's a truth that controls our lives. It should make us better Christians. <laughs> it's not enough to just know about Christ's coming, but you have to practice it in your daily living. Unfortunately, some of the believers here at Thessalonica were abusing the doctrine of Christ's coming. Yes, they believed He was coming, but they didn't live in a way that should have matched up with what they believed. And so in this final chapter, Paul exhorted them to change their ways. Notice what he says, first of all, he says, Paul exhorted them to pray and be patient. Pray and be patient. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. Verse 1, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing, or that you are doing and will do the things that we commanded. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So what do you do? In dark days, you pray and you be patient. See, every believer has a tremendous power in prayer. You have the ability to talk to God at any time. and You don't even have to use the phone. You can talk to Him anytime, anywhere. Say, even though Satan is at work in our world, we can still pray to God. We can see God answer our prayers. It, the answer might be wait. It might be no. But God can answer prayer. And Paul's request 
was that they would pray for the ministry of the Word of God that would work. And the only way to counteract Satan's lies is to share the Word of God. Remember, that's what Jesus did when he was in the wilderness. He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. If you had to defeat Satan with the book of Deuteronomy, how would you do? How well would you do? That's what Jesus did when he was in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. He used the living word, the active word of God. Hebrews 4 talks about the word of God. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, it's powerful, it can pierce. Do you believe that? That's how you defeat Satan. See, you don't have the power to defeat Satan. But God's Word does. And so Paul's desire was to see God's Word spread rapidly and be honored in this world. The Word was being glorified in Thessalonica because they were receiving the Word and they were believing it and acting upon it. Notice Paul also prayed that God's servants might be delivered from wicked men. Now this is important because wherever the gospel goes, Satan is going to hinder that work. He's going to try to hinder that work. He's going to raise up evil people to oppose God's work. And so these unbelievers, even though they're opposing the, the Word of God, they're going to oppose the giving out of that Word. They can't stop God. Sadly, we can't trust men, but we can trust our faithful God because verse 3 says that God is faithful. And believers need to be patient. We need to be patient. We need to pray. We need to give out the Word of God, pray that God's Word would do its work. How is that even possible, by the way? God's able to give us this patience as we're growing in our love for Jesus Christ. Number two, there's a, another practical exhortation that Paul mentions here. He simply says, work. Paul exhorted them to work. Don't just sit around and be idle. Don't be like people we've seen, what was it, last year? <laughs> you know, they, they go and buy billboards and they sell their houses and they talk about God's judgment is coming and they'll set the dates. God's judgment's coming on this day. And of course, God's judgment didn't come. Jesus didn't return. He made them all look like fools. People have sold their houses and they go and sit on top of mountains waiting for Jesus to come. It's foolish. Paul says, you need to be working. Don't be idle. Look what he says in verse 6. Verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. For as you brothers do not grow weary in doing good, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, here's the problem. There were some of the believers at Thessalonica who were misapplying the Word of God. They had heard some teaching about the return of Jesus Christ, and so they were reasoning that if the Lord is coming back soon, then, hey, we'll just kind of give up our jobs, we'll quit working, and we're going to wait around for Jesus to come. And there's a, down through the ages, this has happened many times. 
been various fringe groups who've made the same mistake that they were making. And so they, they've kind of left the things of this world, and people go sit on top of mountains and wait for the Lord to come back, and they've been embarrassed over and over again. Jesus has embarrassed these people with their date setting. It's foolishness, the Bible says, to do this. So Paul exhorted the true believers here to withdraw from these idle, lazy people who are disobeying the Word of God. Why is that? Well, verse 14. So the offenders might be ashamed and correct their foolish ways. So the faithful were to treat these offenders as brothers and sisters in Christ. They, they weren't be, to be treated as enemies or the unsaved. Treat them as Christians, but don't put up with their sin. Okay? So he's pointing them back to his own example here, his own teaching. Paul was faithful when he was there with them. Paul was a man who worked. He didn't, he didn't have to do that, but he set the good example. And so when faithful Christians see unfaithful Christians, what is our natural tendency? Paul talks about it here. The natural tendency is to grow discouraged. And some of us might say, hey, I'm working hard for the Lord. These people are being lazy. It's discouraging. And so Paul, he tells them, verse 13, do not grow weary in well-doing. Hey, don't give up. Keep working. Keep waiting. Be found faithful when Jesus comes. The third exhortation Paul gives is he's exhorting them to hear the word of God and do it. Don't just hear the word, but do it. Look what he says in verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, the Bible is something that you and I are to hear, but we're also supposed to obey it. Those who refuse to obey, <clears throat> excuse me, those who refuse to obey, Paul says, need to mark that person, treat that person accordingly. This action, by the way, is not talking about church discipline or official, you know, the last step of church discipline. This is just something that we ought to do with one another if, hey, if we're, if we're out of line, church discipline's coming to the, to that believer and encouraging them. Say, hey, you know, something, are you okay? The Bible says this, but what I'm seeing is this. You know, is that the case with you, brother? See, church discipline should be taking, taking place every day of the week, really. Every day of the week. If each Christian would just obey the Word of God, the church would be a holier, happier, and a better place, more effective in our witness and our service for God. See, one of the strengths of this church here was it had an, the proper attitude toward the Word of God. They heard and received the Word of God. They believed it. They shared it with other people. They had a good testimony in their community. But apparently, though, some of the believers were becoming hardened to the truth. They heard it, but did not obey it. What was the evidence of their unbelief? It showed in how they lived. How did they live? Some of them were idle. Some of them were lazy. Their lives were a disgrace to Jesus Christ and to His church. The Bible says we need to be hearers and doers. Well, let's finish with Paul's benediction. This is, this is beautiful. Beautiful benediction. So look at verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now this letter, of course, has a specific audience. And these verses are dealing with what all believers need. What do we need? We need peace and we need grace. See, the church at Thessalonica was experiencing great tribulation. They're suffering. They, some of them were believing wrong things. Some of them had died. 
in the Lord. Some of them were living disorderly lives and being lazy and idle, and they needed peace, and so do we. So this is encouraging. And how you say, well, how can we have peace? Well, we can have peace in our hearts if we surrender to Jesus Christ. We can have peace if we believe His promises. If we know who He is, that God is faithful. If we're looking for Jesus to return, we can have peace. And this peace comes from His presence, by the way. Did you notice what verse 16 said? Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. Peace comes from knowing the all-present God who is with us. And verse 16 says, The Lord uh, be with you all. So, we can apply this to ourselves as well. And by the way, this peace is possible because of God's grace, or God's enabling. The book ends with this wonderful truth in verse 18, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. My friends, that's what we need. We need the peace of God to comfort us. We need God's enabling grace to be with us and and help us so we can stand, so we can bring Him honor and glory, so we can be steadfast and serve Him and love Him, be looking for His return, believing in His promises, surrendering to His will, being doers of the Word, not just hearers only. All of that is made possible because of God's enabling grace. So my friend, what? Are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Do you have this kind of hope in a world that is is so messed up? Or are you just so distracted by the cares of this world and this, this world that seems to be messed up? And it is. What are you looking at? May I exhort you to do what Hebrews 12 verse 2 says. To look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Not to look at other stuff, but to keep looking to Jesus.